I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Ishers, it's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Before I get started, I want to warn you that this episode discusses implied racism and law enforcement brutality. Prior to the recent tragic murder of George Floyd, I had been working on developing this case into an episode for the podcast, as I believe these types of stories need to be told. Whether or not this case makes you uncomfortable, I ask that you please continue listening. My hope is that this heartbreaking case sparks a conversation amongst you, your family, and friends, and hopefully, that conversation enlightens even one more person regarding systematic racism that has existed for far too long. This case also involves disturbing treatment and disposal of a corpse. Please use your discretion. Thank you in advance for listening, and now, let's get into the case. Tonight, an I-team investigation about the chaos in the days after Katrina. Okay, that there is a skull right here. Video never seen before shows human bones in a burned car. This video obtained by the I-Team is now in the hands of the FBI as part of its investigation into the New Orleans Police Department involving a death in the days following Hurricane Katrina. Hurricane Katrina, which slammed into the Louisiana coast on August 29th of 2005, was the most damaging hurricane in U.S. history. The devastating disaster came at a cost of $125 billion in damages and killed approximately 1,200 people. Most of the damage occurred in and around the city of New Orleans. Much of the population fled the city before Katrina hit, and this included most of the city's police force. Most officers expected to return to duty as soon as the storm was over. Unfortunately, Due to the unexpected damage to the roads and the excessive flooding, returning right away was not possible. The city, which was 80% submerged underwater, was left without power in many areas 
including most of its police stations and substations, looting in the city was rampant during this time. As most stores were abandoned, people were taking food, water, and other supplies, many out of necessity. Allegations arose of police officers also looting stores during the disaster. The alleged looting by some police officers, however, would take a back seat to more serious crimes involving citizens being shot by police officers in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Within a week of the hurricane, 11 civilians, all of them unarmed, had been shot by New Orleans police officers in five separate incidents. Five of these 11 would die at the hands of those sworn to protect them. Join me as I walk you through the case involving Henry Glover. takes us to New Orleans, Louisiana, which is located in the parish of Orleans. Louisiana has parishes instead of counties. New Orleans was founded by French colonists in 1718 and was originally part of the French Empire. In 1763, after the end of the Seven Years' War, under the terms of the Treaty of Fontainebleau, Spain ceded what is now the state of Florida to Great Britain. To compensate Spain for Florida, France gave over its colonies to the west of the Mississippi River, which included New Orleans. Spain continued to rule New Orleans until 1800, when it was returned to France through the Treaty of Il Defonso. In 1803, New Orleans was acquired by the United States in the Louisiana Purchase. New Orleans is famous for its Creole and Cajun food, as well as its New Orleans-style French cuisine. The city is also known for its rich musical influence in jazz and R&B, and of course, Mardi Gras. Crime has been an issue in the city for decades. From 1990 to 1997, New Orleans averaged nearly one murder per day. On the morning of September 2nd of 2005, A woman named Brandy Williams and her sister-in-law were leaving an abandoned strip mall on General de Gaulle Drive in New Orleans. They had a shopping cart filled with items they had taken from abandoned stores in the mall. Their family had gone days without running water and electricity, and they were now out of food. Unknown to the two women, on the second floor of the strip mall was a New Orleans Police Department substation. As they put the items from the shopping cart into a suitcase, rookie police officer David Warren stepped onto the balcony, identified himself, and asked the women if the items in the cart belonged to them. When they said no, he told them to go home, which they did, leaving the supplies inside of the suitcase next to the shopping cart. Brandy had come to New Orleans before the hurricane to visit her family. She was staying with her cousin, Rolanda Short, and Rolanda's fiancé, Henry Glover. On the way back to Rolanda and Henry's home, after their run-in with Officer Warren, the women ran into Henry Glover and his friend, Bernard Colloway, who was the boyfriend of Henry's sister, Patrice. Brandy and her sister-in-law told the men what happened at the mall and asked them to go back to get the supplies which they needed to help them get out of town, away from the destroyed city. Henry and Bernard got into a pickup truck which was reported to have been stolen, and drove to the strip mall. The two men pulled up next to the suitcase full of supplies and got out of the truck. Bernard later said he heard a voice telling them to leave, and then a gunshot rang out. He and Henry started to run. When Bernard looked back, he saw that Henry had fallen to the ground. He went back to help him and saw that his friend had been shot. He tried to help Henry get back up, Realizing that he couldn't move very far, Bernard told Henry to stay where he was and that he would go for help. Bernard started running toward the home of Henry's brother, Edward King, who lived close by. When he arrived, 
Bernard began yelling for Edward to come outside. Edward came out of his house and saw Bernard running toward him, telling him that Henry had been shot. The two men went to find help. Back on the street, Henry, wounded from a gunshot, was still trying to make it home. He staggered down the street about 50 feet, fell down again, and this time could not get up. Edward and Bernard made their way back and found Henry lying in the street. Edward flagged down a car. The driver of the car, Will Tanner, was a man who lived in the neighborhood. Will didn't know Henry, Edward, or Bernard, but saw that someone was in trouble and stopped to help. The men lifted Henry into Will's car, and Bernard asked Will to drive Henry to the hospital. Will responded, saying that he didn't think Henry could make it that far, based on his condition. Instead, Will drove Henry to a temporary police station at nearby Paul B. Hobbins Elementary School, as he believed they could assist in getting medical treatment. As they reached the school, Bernard and Edward got out of the car and yelled that they needed medical assistance for Henry, who had been shot. Immediately, police swarmed the men and handcuffed Bernard and Edward. They pulled Will out of the car, forced him onto the ground, and handcuffed him as well. Edward yelled that his brother had been shot. He later said that instead of helping them, the officers began beating the three men. Edward said there were five officers and described them all as being white males. Edward said the five officers beat them as they lay on their stomachs, on the ground, handcuffed. The beatings continued until a female officer reportedly came out of the school and saw what was happening. She apparently recognized one of the men and yelled for the other officers to stop, saying that she knew Will. With her apparent intervention, the beatings stopped. When she asked what Will did, one of the officers said that the three men had been looting and he used a racial slur as he described their alleged criminal behavior. Eventually, the officers let the three men get back up and removed the handcuffs. However, they would not let Will have his car back. One of the officers took Will's jumper cables, toolbox, and a gas can out of the trunk. Another officer got into Will's car and drove it away, with Henry still in the back seat, suffering from a gunshot wound. Another officer, who Edward would later identify as the one who beat him, Lieutenant Dwayne Shurman, second in command of the New Orleans SWAT team, got into another vehicle and followed the officer who was driving Will's car, with Henry still inside. About a week after Will Tanner's vehicle was taken away by New Orleans police officers, Istvan Bolog, a private security consultant, discovered the car abandoned on a levee. To his shock and horror, Balag observed human remains in the back seat of the car. The remains would later be determined to be Henry Glover. It is unclear whether or not Henry was still alive at the time the officers drove the car away or if he died sometime later. The vehicle and Henry's body were badly burned. Balag said he told the New Orleans police the Louisiana State Troopers, federal authorities, and the military about the vehicle, but no one seemed to care. Incredibly, after Bullock reported it, Will Tanner's vehicle sat on the levee for another week until it was towed to the New Orleans Parish Coroner. Almost two and a half months after Henry's death, his family was still not aware of what happened to him. Edna Glover, Henry's mother, had gone to the police station to try to get answers. She told police that her son had been shot and that his brother and two others took him to the substation at Habens Elementary School for help, but they had been arrested and beaten up. She said that the car Henry was in was driven away by an officer, and no one knew what happened to the vehicle or her son. The police took Edna's report, recorded Henry Glover as a missing person, and filed it away. No other action was taken. Henry's sister, Patrice, said the police told her mother they would follow up with them about Henry, but the family never heard from them again. Eight months later, Henry Glover's remains were identified through DNA and then returned to his family. Dr. Frank Minyard, the coroner, performed Henry's autopsy. 
He said he was unable to determine Henry's cause of death because of the lack of information he received. He said the body bag he received with Henry's remains only contained bones. He said there was nothing on the body bag to identify where the bones came from or how they even got to the coroner's office. Minyard said he was not even aware that the remains had come from the back seat of a car. Because of this, he left the line on the autopsy for the cause of death blank. Kevin Whaley, a forensic pathologist who works as a medical examiner in Virginia, had come to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina to assist with the influx of autopsies. Whaley disputed what Minyard claimed about not knowing where Henry's remains came from. According to a December 2008 article by A.C. Thompson at TheNation.com, Whaley said, I was told they'd found a burned-out car and this set of remains was in it. And for a forensic pathologist, I mean, that should be enough. If all you have is a burned-out car and remains with this degree of disruption and charring, that's suspicious. Typically, the car fires we see, all the organs are fine, almost pristine. You can do a full autopsy, just like you would anybody else. This state of all that being gone, well, that's just really out of the ordinary. Whaley also said that his first suspicion when he saw Henry's remains was that this was a homicide. In that same article, Whaley said, When I heard he was found in a burned car, I thought that that was a classic homicide scenario. You kill someone and burn the body to get rid of evidence. Whaley agreed with Minyard saying there wasn't much left in the body bag containing Henry's remains. Since most of his bones had burned to ash, he believed they must have been burned at a temperature between 1,500 to 2,000 degrees. Whaley said he also found metal bits mixed with the bones and ash. He couldn't be sure, but he thought it was possible these metal bits could be fragments from bullets or part of a knife. Shockingly, missing from the body bag was Henry Glover's skull. Part of the chaos in New Orleans arguably began on August 31st, two days after the city was hit by Hurricane Katrina. On that day, the city's mayor, Ray Nagin, was upset by the looting and other crimes, which depleted the police force. He claimed that this was making it difficult to enforce the law. In turn, he tried to declare martial law and apparently told the police to do whatever it takes to restore order regardless of the citizens' civil rights. Martial law is invoked by the government and administered by the military in emergency situations when civil law cannot maintain public order and safety. It's typically only used in times of war, and only the President of the United States or the Governor of a state can declare it. Furthermore, Louisiana does not recognize the term martial law in its state constitution, though there are provisions for emergency procedures. It is unclear whether Mayor Nagin was aware of this. While the investigation into Henry Glover's murder was being conducted by law enforcement, an inquisitive reporter had also been looking into the suspicious death. It was this reporter's investigative work that brought about a major break in Henry's case. A.C. Thompson, an investigative reporter from ProPublica, said that during his own investigation of Henry's murder, I got a break. A source came to me with information about what had happened to Henry Glover, and the source had photographs. The pictures show the whole crime scene and clearly show the skull that never made it to the corner. And my source told me something else. The photos were taken by the New Orleans Police Department by officers at the 4th District Station. It turns out that the spot on the levee where the car and Henry's body had been torched is barely a block away from that station. Thompson's statements about this major break had been reported in an August 2010 article on PBS.org by Thomas Jennings and Seth Balms. In 2008, about three years after Henry's death, Thompson contacted the New Orleans Police Department. He was prepared with a set of written questions regarding Henry Glover's death. He wanted answers since no charges had ever been filed 
in the apparent murder. Thompson was armed with photos of Henry's remains in the back seat of Will Tanner's burned-out vehicle, which he had received from his source. The source had also told him that the higher-ups in the police department had chosen not to investigate Henry's death. The response to Thompson's request for answers was brief. In a two-sentence email from Robert Young, a spokesperson from the New Orleans Police Department, the response read, The death of Mr. Glover was investigated by the Orleans Parish Coroner's Office, independent of the New Orleans Police Department, who found no evidence to rule the death of Mr. Glover a homicide. Furthermore, the New Orleans Police Department did not receive any information to support or substantiate the information that you received from your sources. This, according to a December 2008 article by A.C. Thompson at thenation.com. The New Orleans Police Department maintained at one point that they did not have any reports of any officer-involved shooting of a civilian on September 2nd, the day Henry was shot. That said, a New Orleans Times-Picayune reporter found a police report a few years after the shooting written by David Warren, the officer who shot Henry Glover. In Warren's report, he described the incident and claimed that he was in his office on the second floor of the strip mall in the police substation when he heard a noise. He reported that he went outside and that's when he saw a pickup truck and two men standing outside of the truck. He reported that he believed the men were menacing him, so he said he yelled for them to get back, but they charged toward the unlocked gate on the ground floor of the strip mall. Warren reported that this made him fear for his life, so he fired one shot. Warren said he didn't know if he hit anyone, even though the distance from where he fired to the truck is relatively short with a clear line of sight. Finally, in 2009, the FBI opened a case to look into Henry Glover's murder. Without Thompson's investigative work on the police misconduct during the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, it's possible that multiple crimes, including Henry Glover's murder and the subsequent cover-up, would never have come to light. Thompson's reporting not only earned him the 2011 I.F. Stone Medal for Journalistic Independence, but it also gave enough publicity to the cases of police officers shooting unarmed civilians that law enforcement decided that they could no longer ignore them. In one of his articles, Thompson said, If the NOPD ever bothers to learn who set fire to Glover, the department's first step should be questioning its own personnel. A trail of clues leads right back to the police force. This, according to a December 2008 article, at thenation.com by A.C. Thompson. Shortly after the FBI opened up an investigation into Henry's death, the New Orleans Police Department also decided to open up their own investigation. In 2010, five current or former New Orleans police officers were charged in federal court for Henry Glover's murder and or obstruction for the subsequent cover-up. The officers charged were David Warren, who was no longer with the department. Warren, who was a rookie in 2005, was the officer who shot Henry Glover. He was charged with murder. Dwayne Shoreman, a lieutenant for the New Orleans SWAT team, was charged with civil rights violations for the beatings of Edward King, Bernard Calloway, and Will Tanner. He was also charged with destruction of evidence for burning Will's car with Henry's remains inside. Shurman drove the vehicle that followed Will's car to the levee before it was burned. Gregory McRae, a New Orleans police officer, received the same charges as Shurman. McRae was the officer who drove Will's car to the levee with Henry in the back seat. Travis McCabe, a New Orleans police lieutenant, was charged with obstructing a federal investigation for altering and concealing documents as well as covering up evidence in the investigation of Henry Glover's death. He was also charged with lying to a federal grand jury. Robert Italiano, former New Orleans police lieutenant, received the same charges as McCabe. Warren, Shurman, McRae, McCabe, and Italiano, 
who were all indicted in June of 2010, would be among 20 former or current members of the New Orleans Police Department facing federal charges for crimes in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. All five would be tried together in a trial set to begin a few months after they were indicted. In November of 2010, the trial began. The prosecution was led by Assistant U.S. Attorney Jared Fishman of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division. He would be assisted by Assistant U.S. Attorneys Tracy Knight and Michael Magner of the Eastern District of Louisiana's office. U.S. District Judge Lance Afric would hear the case. The defense teams planned to use the chaos and turmoil of the city in the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Katrina to defend their client's actions. David Warren's attorneys claimed that their client reasonably believed that his life was in danger when he shot Henry Glover. The prosecution claimed that on September 2nd, even before he shot Henry Glover, David Warren had shot at another man. They said that while Warren was on the second floor of the strip mall, he saw a man riding his bike. After the man passed by him a fifth time, the prosecution said that he fired a warning shot in the man's direction. Warren's defense claimed that their client had not aimed his firearm anywhere near the man on the bike. Bernard Colloway testified for the prosecution. On the stand, he said that he and Henry went to get the suitcase left at the strip mall. He said that when they got out of the truck to get the suitcase, he heard a loud noise and a voice yelling for them to leave. He said he began running and looked back and saw that Henry was stumbling. He went back to help him and noticed that he had been shot. He described how he and Edward King had been able to flag down Will Tanner to take Henry for medical help. He also recalled that as soon as they pulled into Haben's Elementary School and got out of the car, they were handcuffed and beaten. Bernard said that Officer McRae took some items out of Will's trunk, then drove away in his car, with Henry still in the back seat. Will Tanner testified that both Officer McRae and Officer Shoreman beat him when he stepped outside of the elementary school to get medical help for Henry. Alex Brandon, a photographer for the New Orleans Times-Picayune, testified that in late November of 2005, he had been on scene at the levee where Will Tanner's burned-out car was still sitting with Henry Glover's remains in the back seat. He testified that he was specifically told by Officer McRae not to take any photos of the scene. Officer David Warren testified on his own behalf. He said that he saw a pickup truck arrive at the strip mall and assumed that it had been stolen. He said when he saw Henry and Bernard get out of the truck, he became concerned. He yelled at them to get back, but said that they started running toward the gate of the strip mall. Warren said he thought he saw a weapon in Henry's hand or that Henry was moving his hand toward his waistband for a weapon. Warren said he believed he was in danger, so he fired one shot. He said that after he fired the shot, Henry and Bernard ran away and that he had no reason to think that he had hit either of them. New Orleans Police Captain Harry Mendoza testified that he was ordered by Deputy Chief Warren Riley to take the city back and shoot looters. Riley denied ever saying that. One of Mendoza's lieutenants, Mike Conn III, had previously agreed with Captain Mendoza's claim and said he would also testify to it if asked. In fact, Conn claimed to know exactly where Riley made the statement about taking back the city, saying, It was in Harris' parking lot. We were having our morning meeting. The captains and their lieutenants were there, and Riley said, It's time to take the city back. I'm giving you instructions to tell your men to shoot all looters. Khan went on to say, It was such an almost ridiculous order that Mendoza and I said there was no way that we were going to tell our guys that. He can't just decide arbitrarily that you're going to start shooting people for stealing things. Khan's statements were reported by Sabrina Shankman, Tom Jennings, Brendan McCarthy, Laura Maggie, and A.C. Thompson at ProPublica.org in July of 2012. Some of the more shocking testimony during the trial 
came when Officer Greg McRae took the stand. McRae admitted to taking Will Tanner's vehicle from the elementary school, driving it to the levee, and using flares to set the car, along with Henry Glover's body, on fire. He said it was his idea to set the car on fire, saying he did it because he was sick of seeing all the rotten corpses after the deaths from Hurricane Katrina. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Want to avoid the hassle of going to the post office? Check out stamps.com, where you can essentially bring the post office to you. Print postage whenever you need it, and send packages anywhere. If you're a small business owner or an online seller, Stamps.com is perfect for you. My husband and I ship products through the mail, and we were so excited to learn that we can also ship via UPS with our Stamps.com account. Oh, and did I mention you get insane discounts? Like up to 62% off shipping rates. You can even call to schedule a free package pickup. Seriously, Stamps.com makes shipping so easy and affordable. And how can you resist shipping from home and saving money and time while you do it? Right now, my listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type murderish. That's stamps.com, enter murderish. Stay safe, my friends. Many people want to further their education but can't seem to fit college into their busy schedules. This is where the University of Texas at El Paso, or UTEP, comes in. With UTEP's suite of fully online degree programs, the barriers to getting a degree have been removed. UTEP is fully equipped to support you from registration to graduation because they know that entering school after a long time away can be tough. Not only are UTEP's degree programs flexible and convenient, they're also very affordable. UTEP has some of the lowest tuition rates within the UT system. Student support is of utmost importance at UTEP. They assign a point of contact for students so they have guidance throughout their educational journey. UTEP also works very well with people who've recently served in the military. Their Military Student Success Center makes it so seamless to enroll at UTEP after their service. UTEP is accepting applications now. For more information, go to online.utep.edu. Call UTEP today at 1-800-684-UTEP or visit them online at online.utep.edu. With UTEP Connect, higher education is now within reach for everyone, everywhere. Officer Linda Howard was David Warren's partner at the strip mall substation the day that Henry Glover had been shot. Howard testified that after Warren shouted at Henry and Bernard to leave, the two men looked startled, as if they didn't know anyone was watching them. She said the men started to run away, but Warren took a shot at them. Although Warren said both men ran away after he fired. Howard said she didn't see anything that looked like a weapon in Henry's hand, nor did she see Henry make any movement with his hand toward his waistband, as Warren had claimed in his testimony. Howard testified that Henry fell after Warren fired, as if he'd been shot, then got up and kept running, and fell down further down the street. She said she could see him from a distance, and saw some men pick Henry up and put him into a vehicle. Howard said she was crying and hysterical over seeing Henry being shot, and contacted her sergeant, Pernella Simmons, about it. She said she also spoke with a ranking officer later in the day, 
and said that she believed Warren's actions were not justified. In Warren's testimony, he claimed that Howard had not been hysterical and that she had not been crying and that the two of them even ate a meal together later that day. He said that Howard was perfectly calm during that time. That said, Howard's testimony about what happened was corroborated by a report, which was written by her sergeant. Her sergeant filed the report in December of 2005, after Howard reported what happened. Under cross-examination, Howard admitted that when she was interviewed by the New Orleans homicide detective assigned to investigate the shooting, she had given a different account of what happened. In that interview, Howard told the detective that she did not see Warren shoot Henry. She said she heard a noise toward the back of the strip mall, went outside and saw two men, and then told Warren, who went back to the balcony. Howard said in that interview that a few minutes later, she heard a gunshot and ran to the front of the mall but didn't see anyone. She testified that the reason her stories were different was that during the 2009 interview, she was under the influence of Benadryl, which made her sleepy. She also said that she had suppressed the memories of the shooting before the interview. She said that a few days after she had given the interview to the detective, she went back to the strip mall and later began having flashbacks about what really happened. Howard said that she contacted the homicide detective and told him what she now remembered which was the same version she had just testified about in court. On Thursday, December 9th of 2010, a jury of seven women and five men had reached a verdict. The jury convicted three of the defendants of federal charges against them. David Warren was convicted of manslaughter in the shooting death of Henry Glover. He was also convicted of depriving Henry of his right to be free from the use of unreasonable force by a law enforcement officer. The jury found that the offense resulted in Henry's death and that the offense involved an attempt to kill. Warren was also convicted of carrying, using, and discharging a firearm in furtherance of a crime of violence resulting in an individual's death. The jury found that the offense did not constitute murder but that the offense did constitute voluntary manslaughter. Greg McRae was convicted of obstruction and destroying evidence for burning Will Tanner's car and Henry's body. In addition, McRae was convicted of depriving Tanner of the right to be free from an unreasonable seizure by a law enforcement officer, depriving Henry Glover's descendants and survivors of the right to access courts to seek legal redress for a harm obstruction of a federal investigation, and use of a firearm to commit a felony. The jury convicted Travis McCabe of obstruction for falsifying a police report and for lying to FBI agents. Sentencing for these convictions was scheduled for March of 2011. SWAT Lieutenant Dwayne Shurman was identified as one of the officers who beat Edward King, Bernard Calloway, and Will Tanner as well as the one who drove the vehicle that followed Greg McRae in Will's car to the levee. The jury acquitted Shurman of all charges. Former New Orleans Lieutenant Robert Italiano was acquitted of obstruction. Henry's family and friends were understandably unhappy that two defendants were acquitted and that Warren had only been convicted of manslaughter and not murder. On Thursday, March 31, 2011, David Warren and Greg McRae attended a sentencing hearing. When asked by the court if either defendant had anything to say, Warren declined to make a statement. McRae, however, apologized to the families of Henry Glover and his co-defendant, David Warren. Michael Ellis, an attorney for Warren, said that his client had been up all night during September 1st guarding a suspect who had shot a fellow police officer in the head. The officer, Detective Kevin Thomas, survived, but had to leave the force due to his injuries. Before Judge Afric handed down the sentences, he called the actions of the defendants inexcusable and barbaric. He dismissed arguments by the defense that the strict sentences would deter officers in the future from staying in the city after a huge disaster to help protect the public. As for David Warren, 
Judge Afric called his testimony absurd, referring to Warren believing that Henry posed a threat to him. According to a March 2011 Atlanta Journal-Constitution article on WebCitation.org by Michael Kunzelman, Judge Afric said to Warren, Henry Glover was not at the strip mall to commit suicide. He was there to retrieve some baby clothing. You killed a man. Despite your tendentious arguments to the contrary, it was no mistake. With that, David Warren was sentenced to 25 years and 9 months in prison and ordered to pay Henry's family $7,642 for funeral expenses. Judge Afric then turned his attention to Greg McRae, saying, Your conduct was barbaric. The devastation caused by Hurricane Katrina was made uglier by your disturbing actions. At a time when more was expected of you, you failed miserably. That according to the same article by Michael Kunzelman. McRae was sentenced to 17 years and three months in prison, three years of supervised release, and ordered to pay restitution of $6,000 for burning Henry's body. According to a March 2011 article on justice.gov, after the sentencing hearing, Thomas Perez, Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division, spoke out, saying about Warren and McRae, Instead of upholding their oath to protect and serve the people of New Orleans in the days after Hurricane Katrina, these officers abused their power and violated the law and the public trust. Today's sentence brings a measure of justice to the Glover family and to the entire city. After Travis McCabe's conviction for obstruction and falsifying a police report, but prior to his sentencing, new evidence had come to light. This would change everything. After reviewing the new evidence, Judge Afric ruled that McCabe deserved a new trial, saying he believed the jury would have acquitted McCabe had they been aware of this new evidence. The new evidence brought to light that New Orleans Police Sergeant Pernella Simmons had filed a report that contained fabricated material which seemed to indicate that Warren's shooting of Henry Glover was justified. Simmons claimed that she had not written the fabricated material in the report and that the false information was added to her report after she had turned it in. Simmons did not have a copy of the original report that she turned in, which could have helped her case. David Warren, however, was able to produce a copy of a report that was almost identical to the one that prosecutors charged McCabe with falsifying. Warren said that he received this copy of the report from Pernella Simmons, which she denied. The prosecution appealed Judge Afric's decision to give McCabe a new trial. When the appellate court upheld Afric's decision, the prosecution dismissed all charges against McCabe leaving only two of the five defendants with convictions for Henry's murder, and both of them would later appeal. McCabe had been fired from the department in February of 2011 after his conviction. After the charges against him were dropped, he applied for reinstatement of his job, plus three years back pay. McCabe eventually returned to the New Orleans police force. If you're like me, you want dinner ready fast and with as little prep as possible. My go-to dinner solution lately has been Every Plate. Their meals are delivered right to your doorstep and the price point is up to 58% less expensive than other popular meal kits. In about 30 minutes, Every Plate makes delicious meals possible for the whole family and all ingredients come pre-measured to make your life that much easier. I also love that Every Plate does their part to take care of the planet by offsetting their carbon emissions by 100%. Here's the mind blower. Every Plate has passed the kid test because my picky eaters have enjoyed all of the Every Plate meals I've made for them. Enjoy your first week of Every Plate meals for only $3.99 per meal by going to everyplate.com and using code MURDERISH1. 
That's everyplate.com. Enter promo code MURDERISH1 to get your first week of Every Plate meals for only $3.99. My biggest hair issue is not having enough body or bounce. I've tried so many different shampoos and conditioners, but didn't love any of them. I recently got personally formulated shampoo and conditioner from Pros, and I love it. On the Pros website, I took a quiz that asked questions about my age, hair texture, whether my hair is colored, its thickness, and more. The quiz even asked about my eating and exercise habits. They really get down to the nitty-gritty to ensure that you get the best hair care for you and your lifestyle. Based on my quiz answers, Pros recommended a shampoo and conditioner formulated just for me. I don't mean to brag, but my name was even printed on the bottles. After using my Smooth and Vibrant Plus Purify and Detox Shampoo from Pros, for about two months, my hair feels bouncier than before. The icing on the cake is that my hair smells so good after I wash it with my Pros products. Back in the day when I was single, having hair that smelled good was my go-to trick to reel in a good guy. I'm pretty sure that's how I got my husband. But seriously, if for any reason you don't love your Pros products, They'll let you return it with no hassle. Pros is the healthier hair regimen with your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair quiz and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash murderish. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash murderish for your free in-depth hair quiz and 15% off. On December 17th of 2012, the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals vacated two of the felony convictions against David Warren, one for depriving Henry Glover of his right to be free from the use of unreasonable force by a police officer, and the second of carrying, using, and discharging a firearm in commission of a felony that resulted in an individual's death. In addition, the court ruled that the trial court should have tried Warren separately from the other four defendants because none of Warren's charges were related to the burning of his body or the subsequent cover-up. The court indicated that having Warren tried with those defendants likely prejudiced the jury and that if he had been tried alone, the trial may have had different results. The court said that trying Warren with the other four defendants prevented him from receiving a fair trial by the jury hearing evidence not related to Warren's charges. The court pointed out the highly emotional nature of some of the evidence presented in regard to charges unrelated to Warren, such as photos of Henry's remains. Warren was granted a new trial, which would be tried in New Orleans despite the defense's attempt to get a change in venue due to the publicity of the case. Greg McRae also won an appeal when the appellate court vacated one of his convictions but upheld the other three for unreasonably seizing Will Tanner's vehicle, for the use of fire to commit a felony, and for obstructing a federal investigation. Because one of the convictions had been vacated, the trial court was ordered to re-sentence McRae for his three remaining convictions. McRae's resentencing would be scheduled after the completion of Warren's retrial. After the jury was selected, Judge Afric said, with the jury outside of the courtroom, that none of the jury were aware that Henry Glover's body had been burned or that there was a cover-up of the murder. The judge also said the jury were not aware that this was David Warren's second trial. He ruled that the jury could not hear any of this evidence during the second trial as Warren was not involved in any of these charges. In Warren's second trial, the prosecution said that he shot an unarmed man who did not pose a threat to him. Assistant U.S. Attorney Jared Fishman described Warren as an officer who believed that looters in the city after Hurricane Katrina were merely animals who deserved to be shot. He said Warren used his personal rifle with a high-powered scope to shoot a man running away from him, not toward him. Warren's defense attorney, Julian Murray, told the jury that his client was a rookie police officer and an honorable man. He said he knew that one of his fellow officers had been shot in the head by a looter, 
an officer, that Warren had spent time guarding the night before Henry was shot. He said Warren thought Henry had a weapon and that his life was in danger. Warren testified, as he did in his first trial, telling the jury that he feared for his life. After the second trial ended and the jury began deliberating, they sent a note to Judge Afric. Several hours into deliberations, the jury were deadlocked. Afric instructed them to continue their deliberations, but at seven in the evening, they were still undecided. Afric dismissed them until nine o'clock the following morning. The next morning, about an hour after resuming deliberations, the jury asked a question about the location of the truck that Bernard and Henry brought to the strip mall. A short while later, they sent a note asking for an explanation of one of the charges against Warren. Soon, they announced, they had reached a verdict. In his second trial, David Warren was acquitted on both remaining counts. According to a December 2013 article on WGNO.com, Warren said after his acquittal, It's a wonderful, joyous feeling, but I'm almost numb at the same time. It's been three and a half years and I think enjoying my family, hugging my kids, the kids they weren't supposed to grow while daddy was gone. To Henry Glover's family, however, the injustice just continued. They were devastated by the news that Warren would walk free. Henry's mother, Edna Glover, indicated that Warren would be taken care of by a higher power. Henry's sister, Patrice, burst into tears and had to be helped out into the hallway as she cried out in utter pain and disbelief. Henry Glover's murder case, however, was far from over. In December of 2013, at the beginning of Warren's second trial, Orleans Parish Coroner, Dr. Frank Minyard, announced that he was formally reopening and re-examining Henry Glover's death to determine if his cause of death should be changed to homicide. Henry Glover's family had pushed Minyard for years to take another look at the cause of death. As reported in a January 2014 WDSU6.com article by Clint Durrett, Minyard's office explained his decision in a press release saying, In my 40 years as coroner, I have never been presented with a situation like this. I was presented with a death case which was not investigated in the normal way because of Hurricane Katrina. We were unable to determine the manner of death of Mr. Glover due to lack of forensic evidence. On Wednesday, April 1st, 2015, Dr. Jeffrey Rouse, the new coroner for Orleans Parish, announced that Henry Glover's death had been reclassified to homicide. Rouse said the change came from his medical judgment, not from the legal case against Warren. In a press release, Rouse was quick to say that his reclassification did not necessarily mean anything in connection with anyone's trial. According to an April 1st, 2015 WGNO.com article, Rouse said, Classifying deaths is a medical opinion. The change of a classification of death is not a judicial finding. District Attorney Leon Canazero said that at the time he could not comment whether state charges could be considered because, among other things, his office had yet to receive Rouse's report as well as some files from the FBI. Over the previous decade, Henry Glover's case had only been tried in federal court. The state had not reviewed or tried the case. Under the dual sovereignty exception to double jeopardy, states may prosecute defendants under state law, even if the federal government has prosecuted the defendant for the same act under federal law. Canazaro was apparently aware of this, as his office had previously convicted a defendant in state court who had been acquitted of the same charge in 2014 in federal court. When asked about the possible charges that could be brought in a case like this, Canazaro said that he intended to speak with Henry's family to let them know his office would review his case. Meanwhile, Greg McRae filed an appeal for a new trial on July 28th of 2015. His appeal maintained that there was new evidence regarding his case, namely comments made by an assistant U.S. attorney 
from the Eastern District of Louisiana, the assistant U.S. attorney, who was not one of the prosecutors involved in his trial, made comments about McRae's trial in NOLA.com articles stating that McRae and other officers were guilty. The attorney apparently also made critical comments about how the prosecutors were handling McRae's case. McRae's appeal, however, was denied on the grounds that all of the comments were made anonymously. None of the postings made by the U.S. attorney identified her by name, nor could any of the postings be identified as being made by a member of the U.S. attorney's office. On Monday, February 8th of 2016, McRae's resentence hearing was held. Mike Fowler, an attorney for McRae, told the court that his client did not know that Henry Glover had been shot by a fellow officer. He said that McRae had burned Will Tanner's vehicle because he was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Judge Afric did not believe that McRae burned Tanner's vehicle due to PTSD, nor did he believe that he was unaware that Henry had been shot by a police officer. In the end, Afric reduced McRae's original sentence of 17 years down to 12 years, saying the reduction was due to the obstruction charge being thrown out by the appellate court. At that point, McRae was the only officer still in prison for Henry Glover's murder. Again, Henry's family voiced their disapproval. Henry's aunt, Rebecca Glover, said that McRae knew that my nephew was shot. Everybody knew. Henry is still dead and nobody has been convicted for murdering him. This, according to a February 2016 Louisiana Weekly article by Edmund W. Lewis. Not willing to give up their fight for justice, Rebecca Glover said that she would be speaking with the DA's office about filing state homicide charges against David Warren. In December of 2016, there was a new development regarding Henry Glover's death. Mitch Landro, the mayor of New Orleans, announced that a settlement had been made with five plaintiffs pertaining to Henry Glover's case. The five plaintiffs were three of Henry's children, his brother, Edward King, and Bernard Calloway. As of September of 2018, Orleans Parish District Attorney Leon Canazero had still not decided whether to bring state homicide charges against former New Orleans police officer David Warren. Henry's aunt, Rebecca, said the family has not heard anything from Canazero in years after he promised them he would review the case and get back to them. Warren's defense attorney, Rick Simmons, claims he also has not heard anything from District Attorney Canazero. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. If you'd like more information about the show or me, go to Murderish.com. On the website, you can sign up to support Murderish through Patreon and have some of your dollars donated to a worthy nonprofit organization. The website also has a link to buy Murderish t-shirts and other merchandise. That's Murderish.com. If you want to connect on social media, head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group you can also find me on Twitter at Murderish Pod and on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. If you like the show, hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about Murderish. I'd love for you to leave the show a review in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanan of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Steve Field. In order to tell true crime stories on this show, information is gathered from various sources. Head over to Murderish.com if you'd like to see a list of sources used for this episode. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer, it just means you're murder-ish.
the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.